I want you to picture in your mind what you think the biggest threat is to the Christian church. What do you think the biggest threat is to the church? Think of that. Got it? Is that threat an external threat, like persecution or something like that, or is it an internal threat? I'm going to read to you some quotes from people who, are, who claim to be Christians. The white Christ <clears throat> is still alive and well, collaborating with male God to breathe white patriarchy into our spiritual imaginations. White male God continues to justify the silencing, exclusion, and oppression of black, indigenous, and people of color, specifically black, trans, and non-binary people. Here's another one. If you struggle financially, then you've not got the victory. I'm glad nobody said amen. Here's another one. When God gives you a vision, you don't need to know anything else, period. Here's another one. There's no shortage of these, by the way. It wasn't hard to find these. The Lord told me this is the end time message. He's coming to look for his church without spot or wrinkle, but one of the biggest wrinkles the church has is being broke. And this last one from an ordained minister. The word that's most often translated repent in our Bibles is the word metanoia in Greek. Meta means to expand and noia means mind. So when Jesus says repent and believe the gospel, he's not saying anything about being sorry for our sins. He's actually telling us to expand our mind. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Jude. A little short, little, maybe just a one-pager in your Bible right before Revelation. Jude is a often neglected letter. You don't hear it, hear about it that much, partly because it's short, partly because it's difficult and perceived as being very negative. It was written around the time of 2 Peter, early to mid-60s, and there's a lot of overlap between those two books. Jude's approach is, is unique, though, and I think, at least for me, much more difficult to understand, in part because of extensive use, his extensive use of extra-biblical sources. He uses a bunch of stuff that's not in our Bible. There's some surprising things, though, in this letter that I found while studying it, and I hope that you find some of these things surprising, too. Jude isn't just shooting down false teachers. This whole book, we'll see, is about contending for the faith. He's not just shooting down false teachers for the purpose of labeling, rebuking, and dismissing. He's given us some real practical steps for how to engage false teachers in the church, not just dismiss. So Jude turns out to be somewhat missional. This was a surprise to me, even though I had read Jude before. So I hope that you get some benefit from this as well as much benefit as I got from in preparing this. So let's pray and let's go to the Lord's word together this morning. Um, gracious Father, thank you um, for this body where we can come together, where we can worship you as king, where we can dive into your word together, Lord. And I pray for us this morning that you would um, give us some clarity um, with difficult topics, Lord, that you would convict us where we need be convicted and that your word would, would do its work, um, Lord God. Would you 
have your way with our time this morning. We love you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's go to Jude. Only one chapter. Starting in verse 1. Read with me the first couple of verses. <clears throat> Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So who's Jude? Who wrote this letter? There's a couple of options. We don't have time to go through them all, but I'll cut to the chase. Just Jude is almost certainly the half-brother of our Lord, Jesus. I want us to note how he opens this letter. He calls himself the brother of James, but first he calls himself a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ. So in contending for the faith, the first theme I want to draw out of Jude this morning is that we should start with humility, like Jude did when he start, started his whole letter. We should start with humility. Jesus' brothers didn't believe him, we know. They didn't believe he was Lord during his life and ministry. In fact, they thought he was out of his mind, uh, we read in Mark 3. But yet in Acts chapter 1, the brothers of Jesus were in the upper room praying amongst the believers. Something pretty serious must have happened between that time period to change their mind, right? What could that have been? The appearance to at least his brother James was mentioned in, in 1 Corinthians 15. I think this should serve as an encouragement to you and to me if we have unbelieving family members. If an encounter with the risen Christ could convince even his brothers that he is Lord, an encounter with Christ can convince anyone that he's Lord. So we should never give up hope in that. That's just a little aside. I want to notice also in this, these opening verses the triune blessing from the triune God. Um, Jude likes triads. We see lots of triads or triplets, groups of three of things in Jude throughout his letter. He addresses it to the beloved, to those who are called by the Spirit. Beloved in the Father and kept for Christ. There's the Trinity right here in the beginning of Jude. I like that. We also see the letters written to, to Christians, almost certainly Jewish Christians, written in the early church in the 60s. I like the uh, NET translation, the way they translate verse 1 and 2, so I'm going to read it to you. It says, to those who are called, wrapped in the love of God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be lavished on you. There's another triad, by the way, beautiful triad, mercy, peace, and love. We see also in this another reason that in contending for truth, we should start with humility. Who does the calling and the loving and the keeping in this verse? Who does the lavishing of mercy and peace and love? Is it you? You do it for yourself? No. You and I, at our very best, should feel privileged to call ourselves servants of Jesus Christ, slaves. So we start with humility. Pick up with me and let's read verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Second thing we'll pull out of this this morning is that in contending for faith, we should agonize over truth. That's just another way of saying contending for faith. We should agonize over truth. We should know it and we should fight for it. 
Jude says right here in verse 3 that he wanted to write about other things, more positive things, but something negative was happening, happening in the church that needed to be addressed. And what at first seems like Jude making a spontaneous proclamation, like he just switched gears to talk about this emergency, turns out to be a really well-structured sermon in written form. This wasn't just spontaneous. Jude planned this, thought about it, was really tight and concise. And he's addressing something that was an emergency, and he starts off with an urgent command, which becomes, which really is the theme of the whole letter. He says, contend earnestly. The word there, epagonistai, I'm sure I said that wrong, but the reason I tried to say the word is because in the, we can see in that word, that Greek word in the middle of it is the word agonize, right? The English word agonize comes from that word. This is the only place this word's used in the New Testament, but it was used elsewhere in Greek, and when it was used, it was often used to refer to things like wrestling matches, sporting events, or other type of physical or mental contests where you needed to give absolutely everything that you had and then some in order to prevail. Think of a professional wrestling match. Not like WWF or Nacho Libre, not that kind of wrestling. I mean like a combat sport, um, like a professional fight or something between two nearly equally matched opponents. It often comes down to who wants it most, right? Who wants it the most? Who's willing to give everything they have and then some? Jude's telling us to contend like that, to train, to prepare, to agonize like that over the faith, the faith. Not your faith, not a faith, not even our faith, the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, this is the very early church, again, and Jude could urge them to contend for the faith, and people knew what he was talking about. It wasn't ambiguous. It didn't require elaboration. Three things, I think, that we can learn about the faith just from verse 3. One, it's not just a personal faith. It has objective content, doctrine, if you will. Two, the objective content is settled. It was once for all handed down to the saints. It's not progressing and changing. And three, every single believer is commanded to contend earnestly for it. We're the saints here. We're the ones who Jude calls beloved. We're the ones who are called, loved, and kept. That's all of us, not just pastors or teachers or youth group leaders or anything else. This is every single believer that Jude's talking to here. In Galatians 1, it says of Paul that he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. Similar use of the term the faith here. And then Paul implores Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 6. He tells Timothy to be constantly nourished on the words of faith and of the sound doctrine which you've been following. We can't earnestly contend for the faith and fight for it with everything that we have if we only have a vague sense of what we're fighting for. So a question for you and I this morning is, how well do you know the content of the faith? How well do we know which hills are worth dying on and which hills aren't and which ones don't really matter that much? Have you ever agonized over that distinction? I know... Some of you have. I've seen it. What have you and I sacrificed for the sake of biblical truth? The external threat to the church during the time that Jude was writing this really can't be overestimated. First century Judea and elsewhere in the Greek and Jewish and Roman world, this was a hostile place for somebody to claim Christ. <clears throat> 
to live like we're called to live, counterculturally, as hopeful, holy witness in a world of unbelief. That's how Frank summarized First Peter for us. To live like that was dangerous, quite frankly. A public profession of faith could have been a death sentence, and it was for centuries after this, by the way. Yet, in the midst of that kind of environment, Jude is admonishing us to contend for the faith, which includes knowing something about it. One church historian <clears throat> that I read said it this way, and I'm going to quote directly from him. He said, because early Christians were prepared to die for their beliefs and expected to rise again in Christ and reign with him in glory, and because they often had to die, it was very important for them to know, in, to know precisely in whom they were believing, who he was and what he can and will do. It was the constant threat and frequent reality of dying for the faith that made doctrine so important to the early church and called, caused heresy, false doctrine, which cost one's salvation to appear so dreadful. Of course, no martyr of the early church thought that he'd be saved and attain eternal life because he held a certain set of propositions to be true. He believed that he'd obtain eternal life because he trusted in Christ, not because he believed specific doctrines. But he did not make a dichotomy between faith as doctrine and faith as trust. Part of trusting in Jesus Christ and his ability to save to the uttermost was the acceptance of certain propositions about the person and work of Christ. So the faith handed down to us isn't blind faith. It's more than just a personal saving faith in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, as important as that is, because faith as trust and faith as doctrine can't be separated. I've heard a lot of people say um, studying doctrine or studying theology is divisive, but I think Jude is telling us the exact opposite here. It could prove to be divisive, but that's not because biblical doctrine is, is divisive. It's because we screw it up and we're doing it wrong. How do we unify as a church if we don't know what we're unifying around? It's not our faith that saves us, right? It's the object of our faith that saves us. And doctrine is about understanding what we can know about the object of that faith. So we need to understand, understand some basic things about the object of our faith. That's doctrine. So to fight for truth, we have to know it. And to fight for truth, we also need to show it. So in contending for the faith, how we believe betrays, let me back up, how we live belays, betrays what we believe. How we live betrays what we actually believe. Pick up with me in verse 4. Jude says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Verse 4 is giving us the why behind the beginning of the why, we'll see, behind Jude's command to contend for the faith. Certain persons, persons have crept in unnoticed. What do you call a person who creeps in somewhere unnoticed? A creep. That's, that's as close as you're going to get to a joke from me. So Jude's really clear on this point. He's saying that the threat from false teachers in our midst, pretending to be Christians, or maybe even being deluded into thinking they're Christians, doesn't matter. They've crept in unnoticed to the church for the purpose of leading well-intentioned people astray. And that justifies, it also requires that each of us contend for the truth. These people, Jude calls them here, he calls them these people throughout his letter. 
These people are, one, ungodly. Two, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness, and they deny Christ. Is Jude's about to proclaim in very colorful and apocalyptic detail, the coming judgment of false teachers is guaranteed. This is the first time he says it in verse 4. He says it a lot more, as we're about to see. What struck me this time going through Jude, really for the first time in, in this kind of depth, what struck me was that Jude doesn't really address the false teachings of the false teachers so much, right? That's, if I was writing this letter, that's what I would do. I would say, here's all these things these people believe. Here's why it's wrong, right? I'm an engineer, too, so maybe that's why, but Jude doesn't do that. He focuses on their behavior and says that by their behavior, we can know that they're false teachers. How they live betrays what they believe. But isn't that true for me and for you also? Something good to keep in mind as we try to learn what it means to obey this command, to contend for the faith, it's all a waste of time if we don't live any differently than the world, right? Didn't Jesus say that if you love me, you'll obey my commands? Didn't John say that the world will know us by our love for each other? Didn't James say that faith without works is dead? Our actions betray what we really believe, all of us. And lifestyles characterized by taking license to live however we want is how the false teachers in our midst are living, so we can recognize them, Jude says. Now, verses 5 to 19 here are a long argument that Jude is giving in a particular style of writing called Jewish Midrash. It's actually its own genre of literature. What basically this is, though, is it's a sermon in written form. Jude, in this sermon he's about to give us, he exegetes from both Scripture and he does it from some traditional sources as well that are not in Scripture, namely First Enoch and the Testament of Moses. Fragments of some of these texts are found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. More importantly, these were traditional stories that were really familiar to his audience, and he uses them for illustration. A lot of these traditional texts were themselves quoting and interpreting and applying Old Testament Scriptures, and then Jude is interpreting and applying them. And now we're here today trying to interpret and apply Jude. So we're three times removed in some cases. So some of this stuff gets a little confusing and tricky. There's a lot of details that are sometimes left out by Jude, but we're going to see what we can do together this morning. So Jude is going to give us in this sermon seven historic examples arranged in two different triads. Remember, Jude likes triads. So we get three examples, a bonus one in between, and another three examples. The first triad can be found in verses five to seven. So let's read that together. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Man, easy. Three things here. The exodus from Egypt, right? This is familiar to all of us. After God liberated the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, most of them failed to believe him, to trust in God and in his power and in his promises. And the result was both judgment and consequences for their unbelief. 
This wilderness generation, we call them, got what they wanted. They died in the wilderness. That's the first example he gives us from history. Second one is these rebellious angels. This one's easier. Um, Genesis 6 discusses the corruption of the human race and mentions this term, sons of God. Mentions them being attracted to and having relations, relationships with the daughters of men. This is a difficult passage to interpret. The good news is, is I don't have to interpret it for you this morning because all that matters for our purposes is how Enoch, how First Enoch, the author of First Enoch, interpreted it. That's what Jude was referring to to make his point. So First Enoch talks about the angelic rebellion that led to Satan's expulsion from heaven. And in this story, he interprets the sons of God in Genesis 6 as referring very specifically to rebellious angels that left their God-given positions of authority to come to earth and take what they wanted in disobedience to God by committing what they knew was a sexual sin. And as a consequence, God judges them, imprisons them until they await his final justice. All that stuff happens in First Enoch. You should read it sometime. It's crazy. But the point of all that is just that they got their just condemnation from God for their rebellion. I think that's an easy way to summarize it. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah, that's how verse 7 starts, that links these two, the rebellious angels and Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, an opposite thing happened, where violent men tried to have sex with angels. Sodom and Gomorrah is the archetypal story of moral rebellion and debauchery in the Bible. It's why the word sodomy exists, and we know what that refers to. This triad, these three examples here, the exodus from Egypt, rebellious angels, and Sodom and Gomorrah, these aren't chronological. So some commentators have tried to extract some meaning from this by saying, hey, maybe this is a progression of how apostasy works. Maybe that was Jude's point here. Unbelief leads to rebellion, which leads to debauchery. Maybe, I don't know, but at a minimum, we can see that these are three historical examples leading to God's judgment. I think that's all we need to understand what Jude is saying. So let's see how, jo how Jude uses this. Pick up with me in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Jude is applying these Old Testament condemnations to the first century false teachers that have crept into the church. He calls them dreamers. They defile the flesh or pollute their own bodies, some translations say, like the Sodomites do. They reject authority, like the unbelieving wilderness generation of Israelites and the rebellious angels. They revile angelic majesties. Other translations say insult the glorious ones. Others say they heap abuse on celestial beings. Now, there appears to be, in addition to the obvious reference to this sexual sin, there appears to be another sort of spiritual irreverence that was going on here that Jude is condemning these false teachers for. But the next point I want us to draw from this is that Jude's not condemning the behavior because he didn't like it. We'll see this throughout the letter, actually. Jude's condemning the behavior because God condemned the behavior. So in contending for the faith, I think we should let God's word be the judge. Let God's word be the judge. Jude's kind of harsh here, right? He's about to get harsher. But all the judgments he speaks of are God's judgments. They're not his personal preferences or proclivities. Isn't this sort of the point that a lot of false teachings go astray in our day? 
right? They appeal so much to my feelings, to my sexual preferences, to my success, to my rights, to my freedom. My, 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 my. It's all about me. Remember that in Jude, we're talking about contending for the faith from internal false teachers that have crept into the church. Wolves in sheep's clothing, Jesus called them. If God's word isn't the final authority here in his church, then where would it be? We're not even trying to be the church anymore if we don't appeal to God's word and let that be the judge. Let's continue on in verse 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Holy cow. I don't remember this story in the Bible. It's not. This story is from another Jewish traditional work called the Testament of Moses. To summarize super briefly, in the Testament of Moses, there's a story about Michael the archangel, and he's being sent to bury Moses' body. This happens after the events in Deuteronomy, reportedly. And Satan is there arguing with Michael over Moses' body. The point here is that the archangel Michael doesn't directly rebuke Satan. Rather, he says, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't use his own authority to rebuke him. He appeals to the Lord's. Similar thing, I think, is happening in Zechariah 3, verse 2. We have Satan accusing Joshua before an angel of the Lord, and then we have the Lord rebuking Satan, not the angel. Michael doesn't dare to rebuke him himself. He relies on the authority of the Lord, letting God's word be the judge. So judgment belongs to God, but so does the battle. So that's good news. Another theme I think we can pull out of Jude at this point is that in contending for the faith, we should never underestimate the real power of the real enemy. Never underestimate the real power of the real enemy. Now, our real enemy is twofold in a way. It's our own rebellious human nature, but it's also the very real spiritual forces that lie behind that rebellious nature. The false teachers made a mistake, I think, by reviling the things they didn't understand. They made a mistake, I think, by, not, by failing to appreciate that there's spiritual forces and spiritual realities out there that are bigger than them. Verse 10, But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they're destroyed. Perhaps the object of these false teachers reviling was these spiritual realities that lie beneath the surface of every moral decision we're faced with. Maybe, too, there's a connection here back to verse 4 in turning the grace of God into licentiousness, as if we could presume on God's grace and dabble in the idolatry of pursuing our own selfish pleasures without proper reference, reverence for the spiritual realities behind those. Make no mistake, there is a father of lies that wants to destroy me and wants to destroy you. He's prowling around like a roaring lion, in Peter's words. Satan and his demons are far more intelligent and far more capable than I will ever be, than you could ever be. And we forget that to our own peril. Like the false teachers, we can be destroyed by the things we know, by instinct, like unreasoning animals. Paul says something like this in Romans 1 where, he, where God gives unbelievers over to the lust of their hearts and to the depravity of their minds. A clear application to the decadence of our own American culture 
jumps out at me at this point. We worship the things we know by instinct in our culture, where our feelings become the fundamental basis of reality, so much so that we feel entitled to force other people to acknowledge and celebrate our expression of our own self-understanding without consideration for any objective standard outside of our mind. This depraved narcissism is normative in our culture. It's completely normal now. But when it infiltrates the church, this is the kind of thing that Jude would have us contend against. Okay, so we've had one triad. We've had a bonus historical example. Now we get to the second triad that Jude uses from history. This is found in verse 11, the whole triad. Woe to them, for they've gone the way of Cain, and for pay they've rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And a bunch more stuff to figure out and remember here. We're going to do it really briefly for our purposes this morning. Three more examples. The way of Cain, Balaam's error, and rebellion of Korah. You remember Cain, Cain and Abel from Genesis 4. Cain was disobedient, he was envious, he hated his brother enough to murder him, and he faced judgment. I think that's all we need to know about Cain for our purposes this morning. Balaam's error. Remember Balaam? He's a harder one to remember. Numbers 22 to 25, we read the story of Balaam. He was a mercenary soothsayer that was hired by the king of Moab to curse the Israelites, but he had trouble doing it. And he had to be reproved by his own donkey. That's probably the story we remember about Balaam, right? The donkey part. But a couple chapters later, we, we learned something else about Balaam. We know from Numbers 31 that Balaam led the sons of Israel astray, particularly with sexual temptation. Balaam's referenced several places in the Old Testament scriptures as the prototype false teacher with greedy motives. Finally, third example Jude uses is the rebellion of Korah. We go back to Numbers 16 to remember what the rebellion of Korah was. Korah revolted against Moses and Aaron. He was a Levite who revolted and tried to usurp God's delegated authority. And God, fast-forwarding to the end of Korah's story, ended up opening up the earth and swallowing him up, and not just him. So what do these three have in common? I think what they have in common is that all three of these examples were rebels who went on to corrupt other people, to other people's destruction. Cain founded an entire godless civilization. Balaam couldn't curse Israel, but he enticed them into idolatry and sexual sin. Korah's rebellion resulted in the destruction of at least 250 other Levites, Numbers says, and their whole families. So, summary of these historic examples so far. We have three examples of historic rebellion and judgment. We have a bonus example about understanding and appreciating spiritual realities and powers. And then we have three more historic examples of rebellions that destroy other people. Now in verse 12, Jude's sermon is going to wax on with some vivid illustrations from nature. So let's pick up in verse 12 and read those. These men... These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude's like a poet here, right? He's in the middle of his sermon right now. These love feasts, agape feasts, right? Remember that. 
these include these were a communal meal that included observing the Lord's Supper that the early church partook in. And in their midst, there were these hidden reefs, is what he calls the false teachers. This is danger below the surface of the water, right? That can ship even the strongest, that can sink even the strongest ship. Clouds without water. That's maybe a metaphor that we can appreciate more as New Mexicans. Clouds mean rain, right? Clouds are good things. A cloud without water is useless. Maybe it's even dangerous, right, if it brings lightning and fires. Proverbs 25, 14 says that like clouds and wind without rain is the man who boasts of a gift he does not give. False teachers were worse than useless. They were selfish, and they brought others down with them. There could be an allusion in here, too, to Isaiah, chapter 57, verse 20, where the prophet said that the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. You starting to get the picture that Jude's trying to paint, these false teachers in the church? Well, just in case we don't, Jude's got more to say. He gives us a warning in verse 14 and 15. Let's read that together. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. This is a, almost certainly a direct quote from First Enoch which purported to contain a prophecy of the Lord's judgment. This quote comes from a section in First Enoch that is quoting and relying on a bunch of Old Testament warnings. We don't have time to go through them this morning, but I'll give them to you in case you want to write them down. These Old Testament warnings can be found in Genesis 5, Deuteronomy 33, Zechariah 14, and Isaiah 66, starting in verse 15. There's plenty of Old Testament allusions here to God's judgment. And Jude was alluding to them through First Enoch. The takeaway here is that God's judgments are as sure as his past judgments. His current and future judgments are as sure as his past judgments. Now, if it bothers you that Jude quotes so much from extra-biblical sources, here, here's a really quick little aside. The first Enoch was written between 100 and 200 years before Christ. This is the intertestamental period. And it wasn't, for that reason primarily, it wasn't recognized by any of the Jews as part of their own scripture. Jude and his audience knew this. They didn't pretend it was scripture. They didn't treat it like scripture. But what's important is that his audience knew these traditional familiar stories really, really well. So it made a really convenient illustration for Jude to use. Kind of like when Paul quotes... Epiphanes, what's that guy's name? Epimenides in Titus 1, right? He's, he's borrowing something that was known in the culture to use it, as an, use it as an example. Doesn't mean that Jude is treating first Enoch like scripture. Okay, so putting that, putting that aside, Jude's almost fanatical preaching that we just read on judgment clues us in, I think, to something about some of these false teachings what was probably a problem in Jude day, Jude's day and what might be a problem in our own day. Maybe this kind of sentiment sounds familiar to you. God's a God of love and not wrath. He wouldn't condemn anyone for being the way 
we made him, would he? God's love is unconditional. He wouldn't place demands on his children. Jesus says, come as you are. There's no need to feel sorry for sin. That's not even what repentance means. I imagine Jude, after hearing sentiments like this, can't even contain himself, right? Are you kidding? God doesn't judge. Have you read scripture? Have you read your own traditions? Kind of ridiculous to say that in the face of that. God judges the ungodly, yes. He judges all of their ungodly deeds. He judges everything done in an ungodly way and all the stuff ungodly sinners say against him. Jude, in this single verse, says ungodly four times, just in verse 15 alone. But there's another theme that I want us to end on today in this first half of Jude. And that theme is that in contending for the faith, we should keep Jesus at the center. Keep Jesus at the center. But this is maybe a little cliche to like end a sermon on. Keep Jesus at the center. Kind of like the Sunday school answer, you know, the answer is always Jesus. But look with me for a minute at how Jude alludes to Jesus even in this beginning part of his letter. Go all the way back to verse 5, where we see, it's obvious in verse 4, we see in verse 5 that the Lord is the one saving people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently judging. If we connect that right back to verse 4 in front of it, we see the only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. We see that being used as Lord in verse 5. So there's a clear theological transfer of divine activities of Yahweh from the Old Testament onto the person of Jesus. Christ the Son. We see it both in Old Testament examples like the deliverance and judgment, and we see it from the wider Jewish tradition like consignment of fallen angels to the prison of darkness. This was something that only God did. And here, the way Jude is telling a story, we have Jesus doing it. But here's an interesting thing I stumbled upon in studying this. What What if Jude was being even more direct, as if you could be more direct, in verse 5, claiming the deity of Christ? Well, maybe he was. In many of the earliest manuscripts that we have of Jude, not all of them, but more than one of them, in place of the Greek word for Lord, kurios, we have the Greek word for Jesus, Isus, stuck right in verse 5. That's why if you're reading from ESV, you'll see Jesus in verse 5. That wasn't just an interpretive move. There's actually manuscript evidence suggesting that maybe Jude said Jesus. Points the same either way. Jude is picturing Jesus as active in the Old Testament very clearly. I think we can also see a glimpse of this in verse 9 where the Lord is doing the rebuking. I think we can also see a glimpse of this in verse 14 to 15. This quotation from 1 Enoch, in its context, that was clearly Yahweh in Jewish tradition. Now Jude is telling this story and putting Christ in the place of Yahweh, similar to how Paul does in 1 Thessalonians and other places. So, but in Christ, where there's judgment, there's also salvation. Back in verse 1, we see that we're kept for Jesus Christ. We see mercy, peace, and love being lavished on us. Jude's talking about this common salvation we share. Verse 4 has the twisting of God's grace being connected directly to Jesus, to denying Christ. Jude here is retelling an ancient redemptive story that would have been really familiar to first century Jews. And he's emphasizing all these apocalyptic themes and all this stuff from tradition 
about God's coming judgment for sin and rebellion, how that already condemns these false teachers, but he's telling this whole story in light of Christ as the fulfillment of God's promise for salvation for all who would accept them. I don't think that's an accident that he's doing that. If we put anything else at the center of the redemptive story, or of our own personal story, for that matter, our own personal identity, the Bible has a name for that. It's called idolatry. This is a problem. This is the problem, probably, since the Garden of Eden, right? If we construct an identity for ourselves, especially as Christians, that's based on anything before our union with Christ, then we're buying into a false teaching to some extent. A big clue Jude gives us that we might be falling prey to a false teaching is that this thing that we want to believe gives us license to do something that we want to do anyway. It tickles our ears, Paul said to 2 Timothy. Anything that convinces us that it's okay to ignore or reinterpret God's word for our own convenience, this is false teaching. If you identify, for example, as an American before or more often than you identify as a follower of Christ, or worse, you conflate those two, treat them as equivalent, that's idolatry. Jude would call us to contend against this in the church. If you identify more with a political party than you do as a child of God, that's idolatry. If you identify more with your sexual preference or gender expression than with who you are in Christ and the lifestyle he would call you to, then you're believing a lie, a lie that seeks to destroy you. If you believe unfalsifiable theories about government conspiracies or unfalsifiable theories about social justice where the color of someone's skin makes them either a victim or a villain, a victim with special knowledge based on lived experience or a villain with irredeemable guilt, fragility, and unconscious bias, then you are believing a religion that's not based on Scripture and can't be called Christian. If you're more concerned with your rights and your freedom than you are with pursuing a repentant heart and making less of yourself and more of him and with loving your neighbor as yourself, then you're believing a lie that's seeking to destroy your soul. When any of these outside philosophies creep into the church, like they have been since Jude's day and will continue to, Jude's calling us to recognize them for what they are and to contend earnestly for the truth. We'll learn more about what that contending looks like next week, God willing. But here's a glimpse I want us to see of the good news amongst all the judgment. It's right here in verse 15. Jesus isn't just executing judgment. He's convicting the ungodly. Even here in Jude, in this negative part of Jude, before we get to the positive part, we see a glimpse of conviction that can lead to repentance and in Christ, forgiveness and restoration. In the parallel passage to this, in 2 Peter 3, Peter may have used Jude as a source, we're reminded that God is not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Yeah, God judges the ungodly, Jude says, every time. But when he judges you and I, the question is, will he see the imputed righteousness of Christ in place of our sin and guilt, or will he judge us in our own defiance and rebellion and give us what we deserve? That's the question. Why don't you pray with me? Uh, 
our gracious Father, we thank you this morning that we can um, come here and because of Christ stand in your presence uh, and worship you and go to your word for truth. Every one of us deserves your just and your sure condemnation, Father, but you don't give us what we deserve in your mercy and grace. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and you're just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord God, if there's any in our midst that haven't yet experienced your mercy and your grace in Christ, then we would pray this morning that you'd convict them. Lord, would you give them a taste of what it might mean to be wrapped in your love. Lord God, for the rest of us, we need, may we never presume on your grace, Lord. Would you convict us if we do? And Father, would you give us a desire to agonize over truth like Jude would have us do it, to know it and to fight for it and to show it in everything that we do, in every opportunity you give us. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Master and Lord. Amen.